first reading is from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 20, and I'm reading from the New English Bible. Meanwhile, Paul was still breathing murderous threats against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and applied for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, authorizing him to arrest anyone he found, men or women, who followed the new way and bring them to Jerusalem. While he was still on the road and nearing Damascus, suddenly a light flashed from the sky all around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Tell me, Lord, he said, who are you? The voice answered, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you have to do. Meanwhile, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless. They heard the voice, but could see no one. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could not see. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. He was blind for three days and took no food or drink. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. He had a vision in which he heard the voice of the Lord. Ananias, here I am, Lord, he answered. The Lord said to him, go at once to Straight Street, to the house of Judas, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. You will find him at prayer. He has had a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying his hands on him to restore his sight. Ananias answered, Lord, I have often heard about this man and all the harm he has done to thy people in Jerusalem. And here he is with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who invoke thy name. But the Lord said to him, you must go, for this man is my chosen instrument to bring my name before the nations and their kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him all that he must go through for my name's sake. So Ananias went. He entered the house, laid his hands on him and said, Saul, my brother, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me to you so that you may recover your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately it seemed that scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Thereupon he was baptized and afterwards he took food and his strength returned. He stayed some time with the disciples in Damascus. And our gospel reading this morning is from John's Gospel, chapter 21 and the first 19 verses. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, 
Nathanael from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, have you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment round him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter clambered aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Here ends our readings from 
the New Testament. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts and the meditations of our hearts and minds be ever acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I want you to think for a minute about that thing you did in life that was really wrong. The thing that still makes you wince when you remember that you did it. Or if you don't want to do that because you're looking at me a bit panicked now, I have to say. um, Have a think about that wrong that you have experienced from somebody else that you still find hard to forgive. And hold that emotion, either that sense of guilt or that sense of how difficult that process of forgiveness still might be for you. Now, you might say, well, why, Tim, are we thinking about that when we've heard about the Damascus Road uh, conversion of St. Paul? And we've heard about Jesus having a barbecue uh, with his, his closest friends after the resurrection. The two stories are very different, and yet actually there is a similar thread running through, which is that in both occasions, the risen Lord has to repair some relationships, that he has to forgive, even when it's seemingly almost impossible to forgive the things, or seemingly impossible to forgive those things. But if he doesn't go through that process of forgiving, then the church itself would never have got going. The very fundamental aspect of the formation of the church rests in Jesus' mercy and forgiveness. Let's be clear. St. Peter has absolutely royally messed everything up. He has run away from Jesus. He has then denied that he even was his friend when Jesus needed a friend at the very most. And then he's holed himself up in in this room and he's done nothing. He's done absolutely tiddly squat ever since to actually do anything about getting the church going. Even when he's confronted by the good news, he does nothing. Because there's still that sense of guilt that's holding him back. That relationship with Jesus has not been properly restored. If you want a quintessential example of somebody who's all mouth and no trousers, that was St. Peter all the way in the run-up. And this is the chance now for a new opportunity and a new beginning for him. Likewise with Saul, Paul. A quintessential playground bully a snivelling little toe-rag. This is your basic Adolf Eichmann, the one who will organise the bullying and the violence, the one who will facilitate it, the the bully boy inciting anger and hatred towards a minority. I mean, okay, there are modern political parallels with all of that, but, but nevertheless, 
we're looking at somebody here who is a nasty piece of work, who enjoys going around reveling in watching violence. He's not even got the guts himself to actually perpetrate it. He's the one who looks after the cloaks while everyone else gets on with the stonings. And yet, somehow, he is to be the Lord's vessel going forward, the Lord's chosen one. Jesus has to surely forgive him. And it's interesting when you read the, the translation, how Jesus almost takes it personally, you know, stop persecuting my, my people anymore. Jesus has to forgive to get the church itself started. And in some respects, Jesus, I think, is possibly the, the, um, the victim of his, his own rhetoric in some respects. He has spent the whole of his ministry commanding people to forgive. And so he's now got to live that out himself here at this critical moment. So just as on the cross he manages to find that process of forgiveness for all of those people who are doing this terrible atrocity towards him. He also now finds forgiveness for those who have failed him and those who would pick on his closest friends. Forgiveness, though, if it is the basis and, and the starting point of the church then it's beholden on us to think about forgiveness quite seriously. But the trouble is that actually, if we think about it, forgiveness is not natural. It's not normal. The first response we normally have is if somebody comes and smacks us in the face, we want to have a pop back at them. Revenge seems to be the norm. And we want justice with nice bits of retribution it's anger first, that's what sells the newspapers. And if we can get away with it, then let's never forgive. Let's always have that, that burning resentment and grudge against the other person, the other nation, whoever. The trouble with that, of course, and the trouble with those natural responses is that that just then leads to a spiral of anger and retaliation. So we move to the stage whereby we're beyond the playground where it was, well, he started it, miss. So you end up at the stage whereby nobody cares who actually started it because all that's happening is you are responding to the last humiliation that occurred, the last piece of injustice. Anyone trying to now unpick the situation in, between Israel and Palestine, well, you've got a whole century's worth of grievances of he did this to me and she did that and so on and so on, backwards and forwards. And we run the risk in our country at this precise moment, whatever happens over Brexit in the coming years, the harm that has been done internally, that sense of betrayal and anger is on both sides, and no one seems to be backing down at the moment. Whatever future our nation has, it's going to have to involve a lot of forgiveness and a lot of reconciliation going forward. Otherwise, there really isn't very much hope at all. But forgiveness is not the natural response, and yet it is the most sensible one. 
When Jesus commands us to do something, he only ever commands on those bits that are actually very, very difficult. Intellectually, the Christian faith is not difficult. Seriously, it's not. Love God, love your neighbours yourself, forgive. Those are his commands. The trouble is, they're all incredibly difficult to live out. And they involve a lot of courage and a lot of strength and a huge amount of faith. If we deployed forgiveness, then what would some of the situations that go on in the news look like? How are the victims to respond when they have clearly experienced injustice? And how are we, when we have had somebody treat us badly, how can we respond? How are the victims of the abuse scandal within the church to respond to that? How can there be forgiveness and reconciliation for the people in Christchurch or Sri Lanka the victims of 9-11 or Rwanda or a Holocaust. And that's even before we get to the forgiveness on a, a closer level, the forgiving that person who systematically bullied you, the partner who cheated on you, the friend whom you thought you could rely on but who broke your trust. How do we, how can we forgive? The problem is that so often I think we misunderstand what forgiveness actually is. What forgiveness is not is it is not weakness. It is not backing down and saying, okay, you've hit me once, just keep on hitting me. Nor is it actually about saying that the injustice that has been caused is okay in any way, shape or form. And it is certainly not, if you are somebody who is in a vulnerable place, of putting yourself back into that vulnerable situation time after time. Forgiveness has been misused and misunderstood too often by the church, forcing people back into abusive relationships when actually it would have done them a lot better if they'd been able to have escaped. And it has been allowed to be used as the maintenance of unjust systems such as slavery and so on over the years. Forgiveness is not the constant keeling over and being a permanent victim. What forgiveness is, is about saying that what has happened, that injustice that has happened, is not okay. But I choose, I choose not to diminish your humanity by retaliation. I'm moving on, and you are no longer in control of me in any way, shape, or form. It is that removal of control and abuse of that person over your life. It is of not responding with anger. Because all anger ultimately does is it diminishes us and makes us less of who we actually are. Now there is a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness itself is part of that process of establishing justice. It is the bedrock. Reconciliation might happen after forgiveness, but it's only a potential outcome. 
but to forgive. That is the demonstration of mercy. It is the replicating of Christ's behavior. Of not allowing that hurt and that injustice to continue to fester. Uh, Nadia Boltz Weber, who's an American uh, Lutheran pastor, uh, fabulous. And if you uh, look on YouTube or read some of her books, I would warmly uh, commend them to you. She says this, Our human culture would say that evil is fought through justice and might. The way we combat evil is by making sure that people get what they have coming to them, an eye for an eye. You attack me and I'll attack you. Fair is fair. And there are times in our own lives where we've been hurt and we're sure that retaliation would make us feel better. But then when we can't harm the person who harmed us, we just end up harming the people who love us. So maybe retaliation or holding on to anger about the harm done to us or living in fear of it happening again doesn't actually combat the evil. It feeds it. In the end, we, become, we can actually absorb the worst of our enemy and on some level even become endangered of becoming them. Because it would seem that when we are sinned against, when someone else harms us, that we are in some way linked to that sin connected to the mistreatment like a chain through which we absorb it. And we know that our anger, fear or resentment doesn't free us at all. It keeps us chained. Evil persists. Sin abounds. Brokenness prevails. Maybe forgiveness is actually the opposite of saying that what someone has done is okay. It's saying it's so not okay that I'm not going to absorb it anymore. I simply won't be tied to it. That's why we need to forgive, because we can't be bound to that kind of evil, lest it find the evil in our own hearts and make its home there. We are cut loose. God's forgiveness is like giant bolt cutters. And then God says, go and do likewise. Forgive as you have been forgiven, cut others loose too. Jesus commands it. It's not a suggestion. He commands us to forgive just as he commands us to love. Boltzweber concludes, holding on to a grudge or a resentment can feel like a big, delicious feast I can return to again and again until I realize I am the main course. Our refusal to forgive can eat us alive. So while forgiveness may seem the silliest, most unnatural thing to do, it is actually the most freeing thing that we can ever do. I'm not going to allow the evil, the pain, the pain in the buttness of what you've done. Take any more of my time, my life, any more. In both our stories today, Jesus confronts both Peter and Paul. He forces them to realize what they've done. He challenges their behavior. 
He brings it out. He speaks the truth into that situation. What you have done is not right. It is not acceptable. But it's in that confrontation that he allows them that chance to comprehend what they have done. For them to have that opportunity to say, I'm not going to do that anymore. And for them to start to repair the damage. Are there things that you need to forgive? Maybe it's yourself that you need to forgive. Are there things for which you need to be forgiven? Are there injustices out there that you should be challenging? How can you offer healing? Jesus commands us to forgive. Jesus commands us to live out mercy. So may we find the strength we need to enact mercy just as surely as we need to receive mercy, both from God and from others. May the Holy Spirit give us that mercy we need this day and forevermore. Amen.